Hi, this is Eric Weiner, author of the Socrates Express, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling, one of the great interviewers of all time. Hello, readers. Dr. Dilip Jeste is a neuropsychiatrist, former president of the American Psychiatry Association and current professor of psychiatry and neurosciences, as well as the director of the Center for Healthy Aging at UC San Diego, who has spent more than two decades studying wisdom and healthy aging. And he's just co-authored a book about this work. It's called Wiser, the Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good. Dr. Jeste, thank you for the time today. How you doing? Very well. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to speak with you. So, Dr. Juste, perhaps a simple question to start things off, but it is an important question for the sake of context. What is wisdom? Wisdom is a trait that is both complex and unique. Complex in the sense it has several components. And it is unique in that it is associated with personal well-being, but also societal well-being. So what are the components of wisdom? Perhaps the most important one is pro-social behaviors. These include empathy, compassion, altruism. Second one is self-reflection, the ability to look inwards and trying to understand our own behavior. The third is emotional regulation, control, over our emotions. Next one is accepting uncertainty and diversity of perspectives. Accepting uncertainty in the sense that I don't know what the exact truth may be, so there may be different schools of thought about a topic, and there may be different perspectives, so I also accept the possibility of different views. At the same time, I need to be decisive. So decisiveness is another component of wisdom. Then come spirituality, which is different from religiosity. And spirituality means connectedness with something or someone, being connected with nature or soul or consciousness or God, whatever you call that. Fifteen years ago, you expressed an interest to your colleagues in further studying wisdom from a scientific research perspective. How did they initially respond to that? That's a very good question. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. And one thing I have often wondered is what is the meaning of human aging from the evolutionary perspective? Why do humans age? From the hypothesis of Darwin's about survival of the fittest, animals die soon after they lose their fertility. And yet humans live long after they lose the fertility, age of menopause or andropause, we live for decades after that. So something must improve with aging. That was my thinking. And what could improve with aging? I was brought up in a culture that respected older people and believed that older people are wiser. But the question I had as a scientist was, are there empirical data to show that wisdom increases with aging? So we had a meeting, our think tank, which includes experts from UCSD as well as outside. And we have this meeting once in a while where we think about the research direction for the next year or two or five years. So in that particular meeting, I brought up the issue 
of studying wisdom, specifically wisdom of aging. And the reaction on the part of most people there was one of utter shock. It varied from amusement to skepticism to cynicism to outright dismissal. People said that, look, wisdom is a very amorphous construct. It is actually a province of philosophers and priests. It's not a province of scientists. Nobody can define wisdom, let alone measure it. And one person said that if you want to do research on wisdom, do it, but don't tell anybody you're doing research on wisdom because nobody will take you seriously. Hmm. And it's like what you just said. The question becomes, how do you quantify something like that? And that was honestly one of the biggest questions I had when I started this book. And sure enough, you did answer that question. How did you and your research partners eventually understand how to truly quantify wisdom? And was there some sort of epiphanous moment that helped you figure this out? That's an excellent question. So this thinking has evolved over a period of years. The first step before we go to measurement of wisdom was actually defining wisdom, right? So we define the wisdom as a complex, unique trait with the components that I mentioned. Then the question was, how do we measure each of those components? There have been personality traits that are measured various rating scales. So there are scales to measure resilience, optimism, loneliness, and wisdom is a personality trait. So what we needed to do was develop a scale to measure wisdom. That means scale to measure components of wisdom. Most of these scales typically have a series of statements. And then you say whether you agree or disagree with that statement and to what extent. So what we did was we worked with a colleague of mine who is a psychologist and an expert in scale development. So we started a study of about 600 people and we began with a long series of questions. We began with something like 200 questions. We went through them and reduced those numbers to shorter and shorter numbers so that they became meaningful. And then we asked people to rate themselves on each of these statements. To give an example, one statement is, I cannot make decisions when I'm upset. So that means there is a lack of emotional regulation. That is when I'm upset, my emotions take over and then I can't think clearly. On the other hand, there's a question. It says that I seek out people who need help. So that suggests empathy and compassion. So we finally came up with a list of 28 questions with four questions for each of the components of wisdom. And we use other scales to establish reliability and validity of this scale. And that is called San Diego Wisdom Scale. It is published, it has actually been translated into several languages, including Italian, Russian, and Hebrew. Your journey in gaining a better understanding on how the brain creates wisdom means first understanding the primary areas where wisdom comes from, and you identify the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex primarily. There are certainly other parts of the brain as well, but it also included searching for accidents where head injuries negatively affected a person's wisdom. 
And the baseline for any such example seems to be Phineas Gage. Who is Phineas Gage, and what does he tell us about the brain and wisdom? Sure. Let me give a little bit of background to that. So when I started looking at neurobiology of wisdom, I'm a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist. So I wanted to find out the neurobiology of wisdom. We started with a Google search for neurobiology and wisdom. We found zero studies, not a single one. So then we looked at neurobiology of individual components of wisdom, like empathy, compassion, or their opposite, like antisocial personality. And we found quite a few papers on brain imaging, EEG, neuropathology. And so we found evidence about neurobiology of the individual components of wisdom, empathy, compassion, self-reflection, emotional regulation. And they seem to converge in specific areas of the brain, mainly the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. But the question then was, we were talking about neurobiology of components of wisdom, not neurobiology of wisdom as a whole. So how can we find neurobiology of wisdom as a whole? So I thought that there must be what I call experiments of nature, that something happens as a result of which a wise person becomes unwise. And that can happen because of brain injury, or it can happen because of a brain disease. So we started by looking at the literature and finding out people who had a brain injury and rather specific kind of brain injury that changed them from wise to unwise. Phineas Gage is perhaps the best known among people like that. Phineas Gage was a construction worker in Vermont in the mid 19th century, around 1860s. He was described as a nice man, smart man, who was helpful to others, did a good job. One day, there was a very strange explosion and a big iron rod went through his head. Surprisingly, he survived. Not only that, but he was otherwise okay, even physically, except for the blindness in one eye, he was fine. The only thing that changed was his personality. His personality changed radically. He was, as I said, a nice man, smart man, helpful. After this injury, he became antisocial, impulsive, apathetic, didn't care for others. He became childish, at the same time, very passionate about something. He would make plans and abandon them. People who knew Phineas Gage said that he's no longer the case that we knew. Now, how do we know all this? Because his physician, Dr. Harlow, he has written descriptions of Phineas Gage before and after. And his skull was preserved. And neuroscientists did studies of his skull to find out exactly where the damage was using computer technology. And they found that the damage was restricted to prefrontal cortex more on the left than on the right. And since then, there have been a dozen such cases of modern day Phineas Gages who had a localized brain injury and who seem to have lost the various components of wisdom. That is incredible that they were able to go back and look at his remains like that to discover something so profound. That is exactly right. The accident was very unfortunate, but we are lucky that they preserved the skull in a way that it could be examined 
And this was a paper that was published in 1992 in science. So brain injury is something that can affect wisdom. A lot of people believe, and I know you alluded to this a little bit earlier, that old age can be a positive for wisdom, but it's commonly believed that the brains of most humans stop evolving around the age of 60, around the age where those senior citizen benefits kicked in, 60 or 65 years old. Do brains stop evolving and begin a sort of precipitous decline for most around the age of 60, like is commonly believed? That's an excellent question. When I went to medical school, I was taught that the only thing that happens to brain in older age, and by older age, I meant people over 60, is that the brain shrinks. It loses neurons, synapses, blood vessels, gray matter, white matter, everything. However, research in the last few decades has shown that there is something called neuroplasticity of aging, which means that brain can continue to evolve in older age if, and that's an important if, if there is more than enough, or at least enough, physical, cognitive, and social activity. So in people who keep themselves active, there can be formation of new synapses, even new neurons in specific regions of the brain. There can be increase in gray matter and consolidation of the white matter in later life. So this is the neuroplasticity. The brain continues to be plastic in old age, again, in people who are active. And obviously this plasticity continues up to a certain point after the age of 90 or so, obviously it won't be there. But till then, the brain can continue evolving in people who are active. I have relatives who are examples of this, where they continue to show an interest in art or in another hobby, where it does really come down to the basic cliche, use it or lose it, even with the brain. If you continue to try and find innovative, creative, practical ways to use your brain, your brain will retain a certain level of sharpness. You are absolutely correct. I mean, this has been, there have been a number of studies that have shown that. This has been shown even in animals, even rats, mice, cats, dogs, and of course in humans, that in those individuals or animals who are active, you can see increased number of neuron synapses, gray matter, etc., compared to people who don't keep themselves active. So this is real. Of course, we have to keep in mind that the neuroplasticity in older age is not the same as neuroplasticity in childhood or younger age. Nonetheless, it continues. And so that's one of the most important findings in neuroscience is the neuroplasticity of aging. And that's an important distinction to make, and I think it also speaks to something that you address in this book called the grandmother hypothesis. What is the grandmother hypothesis? Yeah, this is one of the fascinating findings in the sciences of this stuff. The grandmother hypothesis states that when grandma helps her adult daughter raise children, this adult daughter lives longer, is happier, and produces more children than the grandma did. This has been shown not only in humans, but also in bottlenose dolphins, killer whales, species of birds called Ceteris warbler. And these are papers published in the top journals in science, like Nature and Science. So this is real science that shows 
that in older age, we can't reproduce. So we can't contribute to species survival by creating children. However, we can contribute to the species survival by helping the younger generation be happier, live longer, and be more fertile. It essentially means passing down practical and useful knowledge and positive ways to go about life, correct? From older generations to the youngest generations to sort of lead by example, to teach a good example too. That's exactly right. I mean, think about this, that humans have a long childhood. The brain doesn't stop growing until the mid-20s. And yet we can produce children at puberty. At 15, you can have a child. But we don't have the knowledge about how to bring up the kid. And when people live in the older age, the grandparents, they transmit their wisdom to their younger generation, their own adult children, as well as the grandchildren. And studies have shown that when grandparents are involved in raising grandchildren, those grandchildren have fewer behavior problems, fewer legal problems, or mental illnesses in later life compared to those who did not have help of grandparents. Wow. Yes. So as you said, the grandparenting has important implications for wisdom of the younger generation. And when I say grandparenting, it is not only biological grandparenting. It's not your own grandkid, but any kids that you help. So these are intergenerational activities that are important, that are useful to both the generations. That's something to stress. If I may say, there is a study called Experience Core. What they did was they took some people who had retired from their job, people over the age of 65, and they divided them into two groups. One group was asked to spend at least 15 hours a week for one full year in a public elementary school. Okay, so they had to go there and help this kid. The other group didn't do it. After one year, they found that these kids, their grades went through the roof. The kids were very happy. Important is older people, they were healthier, their biomarkers of stress and aging improved, and the volume of hippocampus on MRI in these older people who served as volunteers was larger than the volume of hippocampus in the older people who did not work in this elementary school. So it benefited everybody. Exactly. It's a win-win-win situation. At the start of this conversation in defining wisdom, you laid out the various components that make up wisdom. The most important, if there is a most important of these components, is embracing pro-social behaviors. Why is embracing pro-social behaviors so important for wisdom? The pro-social behaviors include empathy, compassion, altruism. Humans are social animals. We have to help one another for the species survival. If we fought amongst ourselves and killed one another, the human species won't survive. By the way, the word homo sapiens used for human literally means wise man. So that wisdom actually comes through socialization by helping one another. 
You also express the importance of self-compassion, but it feels to me like there's a line between self-compassion being a healthy thing and it potentially interfering with the ability to be constructively critical during something like self-reflection. So where is that line between healthy self-compassion and it not interfering with self-reflection or the ability to look and see what you maybe need to change to improve going forward? That's a brilliant question. One thing you should say about wisdom is wisdom means balance, balance between conflict, apparently conflicted things. It is balance between cognition and emotion. As I said, it is balance between accepting uncertainty and decisiveness, right? So similarly, it is balance between selfish and unselfish behavior. We can't be too selfish and we can't be too unselfish. Compassion toward others is critical for human survival, as I mentioned. However, if we are, say, too compassionate, that's not good for us. Think about this, when we are in the plane, they announce that when the air pressure falls and the mass come down, put on your own mass first before helping others, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to balance selfishness from helping others. That's a great analogy so, there. I like that a lot. Thank you. Thank you. So compassion, when we talk about compassion, is compassion toward others. But also there has to be self-compassion because sometimes people are very compassionate to our other, for example, priests or physicians, they can be very harsh on themselves. But that doesn't help. You need to be relaxed and you need to forgive yourself when you do something wrong. At the same time, what your point was, was very well taken, that excessive self-compassion doesn't help. I mean, that then goes to narcissism. And it's interesting to note that compassion toward others is much higher consistently higher in women than in men, but a self-compassion may be higher in men than in women. Hmm. Emotional regulation is crucial for wisdom. Is stoicism the ultimate goal in this regard? If not, what is the emotional goal with regards to improving one's wisdom? That's an important question. Stoicism is not the goal of emotional regulation. Wise person does have emotion, and should express those emotions. A wise person is not a robot. The person will and need to show the emotions for the sake of other people. At the same time, excess emotions are not helpful. When something could happen, say I get my grant funded or paper accepted, I should be happy. When these things get rejected, I should be unhappy. There's nothing wrong with that. So long as those emotions are not extreme, extreme ecstasy or extreme depression are not conducive to wisdom. So what is needed is actually to think opposite. In the sense when you are happy, things are going well, think about something that can go wrong. On the other hand, when things are gone wrong, think about think about things that may go right. And so having that kind of emotional balance is what is needed, not stoicism. You cite three ways of improving emotional regulation, and I think you just touched on it right there. Cognitive reappraisal, distraction, and labeling. What do you mean by labeling? So labeling is kind of self-reflection. So let me give you an example. In California, New York, and many of the states, road rage is common. 
Okay, I'm rushing to my job because I'm getting late and suddenly somebody cuts in front of me. I'm so upset, I'm so angry, start honking, cursing and what have you. But that doesn't help. So what should I do? So one thing I need to do is cognitive reappraisal, where I think about why that person cut in front of me. Maybe because there is a child in the back seat of that car and suddenly the child became sick, started throwing up or had a seizure. If I were in that driver's shoes, wouldn't I do the same thing, rush to the emergency room? So that's cognitive reappraisal. Second is distraction. I put on music, I increase the music that I like to and take my mind away. The third is labeling in which I say that I'm really angry and I am really angry because somebody cut in front of me. They shouldn't have done that. And now that gets me more late. But it is okay to be angry. I mean, I have a reason to be angry and I'm angry and let, let me now move on. So that is the labeling. Why do older people tend to experience fewer negative emotions? Part of that is through experience. When something goes wrong, when you are young, you are very upset. But when that thing has happened four times and you have come out of that well, doing well, then you start getting used to it. So the same negative event won't have much impact when you're older. But there is also a biological explanation. Brain imaging studies have shown that the amygdala becomes less responsive to adverse or stressful or negative stimuli in older age than in youth. The response of amygdala to positive stimuli remains same in youth and old age. The response to negative or stressful stimuli goes down. So it is said that younger people are like a Velcro for negative emotion, whereas older people are like Teflon. <laughs> Something happens, they can just get away from them. We make decisions every single day, starting with deciding to get out of bed in the morning. And most of these decisions are on the smaller side of things. So how do we make sure that we are making the best decisions possible with some of these little things? So what is practical wisdom is actually practical decision making. That every decision we make is based on components of wisdom. Every decision should have empathy, compassion, self-reflection, emotional regulation, and so on. Of course, for very small decisions, like which side of the bed you get up from, so that's not really that critical. But there are other things like what happens when I have an argument with my friend or my spouse or whosoever. Those are important decisions because they affect our well-being for hours, if not days after that. So when something like that happens, we should think back about what upset us most. And it is not only what the friend did that was wrong, but how I took it. So why did I take it wrong? And then how can I learn from that? So next time this happens, how can I control my emotions? How can I be more self-reflective, empathic, compassionate? If I do that regularly, then it will become second nature. And that is the goal, that this wise thinking should become second nature. Then we don't even have to think about that process because it comes naturally to us. It's not easy, but with practice, we can do that. Decisional capacity is comprised of four elements, understanding relevant info, which you were just talking about, 
applying the info to one's own situation, again, something you just referenced, using that info to make a rational decision and expressing the choice clearly, does one of these elements tend to get neglected more than the others? Yeah, the most important and hardest element is actually applying the situation to oneself. For example, if I'm taking a medication and say I hear that uh, medication is effective, but that the risk of serious side effect in 1% of the people. So in general, I would say 1%, that 99% people benefit and 1% side effects, serious side effects, who cares? So that's a good medication. But if I'm going to take the medication, then I want to make sure that I'm not at one out of 100, and I could be. So I perceive that drug differently when it applies to me than when I look at it as a general fact. Who is Ellen Sachs, and why is she so important to your research? Ellen Sachs is a distinguished professor of law and psychiatry at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. She got the MacArthur Genius Award. She developed schizophrenia in young age when she was an undergraduate, and she had delusions, hallucinations, the usual symptoms of schizophrenia. She had multiple relapses. She was in and out of hospital, in and out of restraints. She got all kinds of treatments, drugs, medication, PCT. Slowly, she started getting better. And today, she's very active writer, philosopher, thinker, advocate. She wrote her memoir called The Center Cannot Hold. And I would strongly urge everybody to read that memoir. Beautiful story how you fight adversity and come out of that. And that to me is a great example of wisdom. And I have the fortune of having worked with Ellen Sachs for the last nearly 20 years. We have a number of papers written together. And for me, she's really a role model and inspiration for wisdom. I'm a bit obsessed with this idea of adversity, the notion that failure is so crucial for each of our own personal development because failure teaches us resilience while also providing invaluable lessons to that individual going forward. In this quality, self-reflection is something that you point out in Wiser that is uniquely human. Does self-reflection come naturally to most of us? Unfortunately, not quite. There are a few people who are self-reflective from early life but most people are not. And this is something we need to cultivate actively. It is really critical for doing well in life and being successful. Self-reflection means looking at yourself objectively. You know, we are very good at assessing other people. We can find their faults, where they went wrong, and what should be done to correct. But when it comes to us, the natural bias comes into play. And we don't see glaring faults in ourselves whereas we would see some minuscule mistake done by somebody else. So self-reflection is critical for wisdom and we need to develop it consciously. How important is sense of humor for evolving wisdom? Sense of humor is important. However, there are some cultural aspects to that. There are some cultures in Eastern cultures, for example, where I came from, usually older people are not supposed to be 
smiling or joking it is considered a lack of seriousness however in modern western societies humor is valued and i think that is important however the type of humor is important humor that is sarcastic biting making fun of others that is not wise humor wise humor is self effacing where we laugh with others not laugh at others hmm. humor is important because it reduces the tension in the air and it really calms us down relaxes us so clearly humor has important role in our well-being so long as it is not hurtful spirituality is another important component of wisdom what exactly is spirituality though spirituality means connectedness constant connectedness to someone or something connectedness to nature or consciousness or soul or god whatever you decide you want to connect with and then you feel constantly connected so that way you never feel lonely because you always have that other presence in your mind what is the difference between spirituality and religiosity and is one more important to wisdom than the other religiosity refers to organized religions with set principles and practices so they were involved for example believing certain gods or certain spirits or whatever doing certain things on a regular basis whereas spirituality does not include any of those an atheist can be spiritual person i mean both are useful the problem comes in with religiosity if it is extreme religiosity where you believe that your values your religion is the right one and everybody else's religion is a wrong one and other people are ignorant that's why they don't have the belief that you have that is where the problem comes in mm-hmm. but otherwise just being religious is is actually conducive to better health dr jeste you were the president of the american psychiatric association for a year from 2012 until 2013 those are annual terms the theme of your presidency was positive psychiatry what is positive psychiatry i should say that in during my presidency one of my first jobs was actually to finalize and publish dsm 5 which is the diagnostic statistical manual of psychiatric disorder so i focused a lot on how to define psychiatric disorder that's how the purpose of the manual hundreds of people were involved in that and the american psychiatric association did a fantastic job however i wanted to make sure that my presidency is not only focused on psychiatric illnesses i believe that psychiatrists are experts not in mental illnesses only they are experts in mental health and this is not only psychiatrists that applies to psychologists social workers nurses who are involved on the mental health side we should not restrict our attention to mental illnesses only mental illnesses are obviously important but mental health is very important for every single person even for people without mental illnesses so what i wanted to do was think about ways of improving mental health in people with or without mental illnesses and that's what i call positive psychiatry which is study and treatment involving promotion 
of positive psychological traits like wisdom, resilience, optimism, social engagement. Because what I find in psychiatry and medicine in general is the focus is too much on reducing symptoms of the illness, which is obviously very critical. So I'm not downgrading that. However, I'm saying we need to go beyond that. Controlling symptoms, preventing relapses is important, but let us also try to improve people's well-being and happiness. That is positive psychiatry. This isn't exclusive to psychiatry, of course, but do you think that Western medicine is a little bit too quick to throw pills at a problem versus trying to find the root of things and maybe change it without going some of those other routes first? I think, yes, you're right. I think especially in recent periods, I think the attention has grown more toward solving problems quickly with some pills. And the thing is that, I mean, I was a psychopharmacology researcher for many years, and I believe that these drugs are very helpful for mental illnesses. However, the drugs have limitations. Very few of the drugs cure something. Again, there are some drugs that do, but most drugs don't. They control the symptoms or prevent relapses. That's again, that is important, but they also have their side effects. And we don't know how the drugs act. To find out if a drug is effective, you do a randomized controlled trial. Some people receive drugs, some people receive placebo, and you find out that people who receive drugs, more of them improve than those who receive placebo. Now, some people do improve with placebo. So if I take a drug and I get better, how can I be sure that that improvement was not a placebo effect? So my point is, that the value of drugs has been overemphasized in current medicine. And again, this is not to devalue the value of drugs, they're critical, but we need to go beyond drugs and we need to think about psychosocial and behavioral intervention to improve people's well-being. In doing this research prior to this excellent new book, Wiser, The Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good, you looked for and found research that successfully improved wisdom in the clinical setting. What were these studies, and how did you expand on them with your own research? So we published meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials in a major journal, drama psychiatry. There were 57 studies in the literature that were randomized controlled trial to improve a component of wisdom, like empathy, compassion, or emotional regulation, or spirituality. And half of the studies found that the psychosocial or behavioral intervention succeeded in improving that component to a significant extent. But what we want to do is not just components of wisdom, but the wisdom overall. And we just published a study in which we looked at people in a retirement community. Actually, there were five retirement communities in three different states. And with our intervention, the significant increase in overall wisdom as well as resilience and their stress level went down. So this is something we want to do on a larger scale that could be applicable to most people. Can improved compassion be trained into someone? That's a great question. And the answer is actually yes. There are studies that show that you can improve compassion. But I think we need to do that on a much larger base, not just to in people with mental illnesses or even physical illnesses. But I think societally, we need to do something like that because I find that there is so much stress, anger, polarization, 
that we see in the society that the best way, only way almost, to reduce that would be improving compassion and other components of wisdom. How is physical exercise beneficial for wisdom? Physical exercise is good for mental health and brain health. Numerous studies have shown that physical exercise improves the functioning of the brain. It actually improves even the structure of the brain in some instances. There is also more mental relaxation. And as I was describing earlier, this neuroplasticity of aging requires physical, mental, cognitive, and social activity. So if we have enough physical activity that has neuroplasticity, which will also help increase confidence of wisdom. You know, you think about the way things are in 2020, not necessarily the coronavirus component of things. That's its own separate topic. But the amount of information at our disposal, it would suggest on its surface that we are infinitely wiser as a people than we were, say, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But at the same time, you take a look at social media for even five minutes, you see the sort of humor that you were talking about from just a couple of minutes ago, the humor that is having fun at another individual's expense. So my question for you based on that is, are we becoming more or less wise as a society right now? That's a wonderful question. And the answer is yes and no. (laughs) We are becoming wiser in some way, in the sense Steve Pinker has written on that, the violence and murders have diminished significantly from the Middle Ages. That is, the numbers have come down by something like 100 times. In the past, millions of people were killed in the name of religion, for example. There were invasions of other countries. And the pride of the country depended on how many different regions it controlled. It was said, for example, the sun never sets on the British Empire. That became, and that is not happening now. So now, you don't see that invasions again. They do occur to some extent, but that doesn't happen. Democracy, there are more democracies today than there ever. There is also increasing attention to children's rights, increasing attention to women's rights, even LGBT rights. Again, we are in the very early stages. We are no longer where we should be. But we are beginning to think about that, which we never did in the past. Same thing about uh, racial diversity. At least people are understanding the importance. Some people are understanding the importance. So to that extent, we are becoming wiser. On the other hand, and I worry about the last 20, 30 years, especially, you know, we talk about the pandemic of COVID, but there is pandemic of loneliness, suicide, and opioid abuse hmm. that has been going on for the last 20 to 30 years that people are not aware of. That is called silent pandemic. Something like 160,000 Americans die every year from loneliness-related illnesses. And this is the statistics from CDC. So it is official statistics. And there are a number of studies because loneliness is associated with heart disease, dementia, diabetes, depression, and so on. And what is the root cause of this? The stress level has been increasing considerably in the last 20 to 30 years. Part of that is globalization. And part of that is very rapid growth of technology. Both these things are good in a way, right? I mean, globalization is good because we can, the whole world is becoming smaller. 
technology is great because we can communicate, we can fly, and so on and so forth. Social media can be very helpful. But they also have major downsides. The life has become far more competitive and stressful today than it was 30 years ago. This is especially affecting the younger people more than the older people. The rates of suicide have increased 30% in just last 20 years. And the highest rates of increase are actually in teenagers and people in the 20s and 30s. The rates from opioid-related deaths have increased six-folds from 1999 to today. There were 8,000 suicides, 99, today it is 50,000 suicides per year. And the level of stress has increased something like 15% just in the last few years. So the point here is that the society is becoming much more stressed out, much more angry, distressed, polarized. There is not even anger, there is hatred for people who don't think like us. And that's really not conducive to healthy living. And for the first time since 1950, the average lifespan in the U.S. dropped 2015, 16, 17. This never happened in the last so many decades. And why did it drop? Not because of some new cancers, not because of some new infection. Again, COVID is very recent, just this year. I'm talking about the last uh, 20, 30 years. It dropped because of suicides, opioid abuse, and loneliness-related deaths. So to that extent, the society is becoming less white, and we need a solution. And so I'm proposing that you know we need a vaccine for COVID, and we'll be having many soon. We need a vaccine for loneliness and stress and suicide. And I'm proposing that wisdom may be the vaccine. And on that note, final question, in your estimation, what is the future of wisdom? I think the future of wisdom is very bright. Um, there are a number of areas where research and wisdom is needed. I think we need more longitudinal studies of wisdom. We need to look at wisdom in a scientific way, comparing different cultures, find out if some cultures are wiser than others, and how can we make others wiser? And also we'll learn more about the biology of wisdom. And in future, I mean, I do think that there could be biological means of enhancing wisdom. If brain injury can damage and reduce wisdom, brain stimulation should be able to enhance wisdom. Hmm. Right? Yeah. So that, again, right now we don't have the neuroscience developed well enough to stimulate very specific areas, but in future that will happen. Similarly, there could be drugs that could improve certain components of wisdom. And last but not least is artificial intelligence becoming artificial wisdom. We today have AI, when AI has grown tremendously. In our everyday life, we use AI in every single way. But it is intelligence. Wisdom is much more than intelligence. Wisdom includes empathy, compassion, self-correction. And I do think that the future machines will be able to incorporate some of these elements of wisdom. The machines will never have consciousness or emotions themselves. However, they can help their human owners become more compassionate, more self-reflective, and happier. 
Dr. Delete Jeste is a neuropsychiatrist, former president of the American Psychiatry Association and current professor of psychiatry and neurosciences, as well as the director of the Center for Healthy Aging at UC San Diego, who has spent more than two decades studying wisdom and healthy aging. And he's just co-authored a book about this work. It's called Wiser. The Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good. Dr. Juste, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very important book. You know, I had done several podcasts, but I have not seen anybody who went into this detail and understanding. So I really appreciate that. It was my pleasure, Delete. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening today. You can give us a follow on social media at BooksOnPod. Check out all of our episodes at BooksOnPod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.